This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I am delighted and proud to introduce him as Academy Award winner. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... The winner, it's a tie. And any little girl who's who's practicing their speech on the telly, you never know. Mom, I just want an Oscar. I am Katie Rich. I'm here for today's interview episode with David Canfield. Hello. And Hillary Busis. It's me. Hey. Welcome She's back. Hey. <laughs> um, Hillary, you... I uh, have an interview on this episode as well, but we're going to start with David's. Uh, David talked to Maggie Betts, the writer and director of The Burial, which was sort of a classic under-the-radar TIFF movie where it premiered, and it was one of those things where not a lot of people I knew were seeing it, but everyone I knew who saw it said, wait, this movie's really good, uh, which I think is why you wanted to talk to Maggie Betts to really give this movie a spotlight it deserves. Yeah, I will be fully honest. I it was my last TIFF screening, and I was like, Eh, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't know about this. Uh, and I say that as a big fan of her last movie, Novitiate, but I just wasn't sure that it was going to be the kind of movie that um, made sense for an awards context. And so I wasn't sure if it was one to prioritize. And it's not necessarily an awards movie, although Jamie Foxx is absolutely brilliant in it. But yeah, it's a really outstanding crowd pleaser um, and really showcases range on the part of Maggie Betts. If anyone saw Novitiate, it's a very severe, intense uh, indie that premiered at Sundance. And this is in a totally different vein, but exactly what it should be uh, with a little bit of flair thrown into. I don't feel like we have a lot of fall movies that are like fun, kind of like a, you know, let's just like carry you along. It's not like a romp exactly, but it seems like a really solid watch for just about anybody, which is a really good balance for the rest of the fall season. Yeah, the film, first of all, it pairs Jamie Foxx and Tommy Lee Jones, which... Hard to uh, beat. Hard to beat. And I'd say Maggie Betts is very aware of what kind of energy and comedy you can mine from the <laughs> the clashing of those two actors, who are very different both in style and in performance here. Uh, Fox plays a, a personal injury lawyer who <laughs> helps defend a funeral homeowner uh, who's caught in this uh, increasingly dubious case involving Bill Camp. <laughs> and lots of other great character actors. Um, and the film starts out, it's really light and playful. It's very evocative of particularly 90s courtroom dramas. Um, but it does get at some really interesting questions about class and race uh, that are handled with a very light touch. Uh, and that, you know, never overwhelms the fact that you're really watching an entertaining star vehicle uh, of the kind that, as they say, they don't really make anymore. Yeah, it's really hard to make the kind of movie they don't make anymore. And um nail that tone these days, something about it. So I'm really excited to learn how Maggie Betts pulled that off. Uh, let's hear your conversation with The Burials writer and director, Maggie Betts.
We're here with Maggie Betts, uh, director of The Burial, um, which I saw in Toronto and was one of my favorite screenings in Toronto. It was an absolute blast. So, Maggie, I wanted to just start with the experience of being able to premiere the movie there. It's such a crowd pleaser, such a throwback, and the audience seemed built for it. Yeah, no, it, I mean, I couldn't think of a more perfect place or feel more lucky to have had it premiere at Toronto. My first movie was there, so I kind of have a I've been there before and the audiences are so generous there and they're so engaged. And the theater that we were in, I think it's called the Prince of Wales or something like Princess that. Princess of Wales, yeah. Princess of Wales. <laughs> uh, Gender it, specific. It, um, yeah. It was, uh, it's very big and it's very kind of regal and grand and almost like operatic. So that was, so that part was, um, that's just really cool. But no, it's like a huge honor. And one thing that I thought was really great was that the, um, I think there was some expectation that because the actors weren't going to be there this year, that the crowds or the ticket sales might be less or the mm -hmm. audiences might be less enthused. And I heard it was the opposite, that ticket sales were equal or if not higher and the audiences were super engaged. So, so it was a great, great time. Yeah. Uh, that is very true. The mm -hmm. I, I had been I was at many screenings this year, which were pretty rowdy uh, in the best yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of nice because it's kind of like when you. I mean, I love all of the actors in my movie and all the actors I've ever worked with. But like when you remove all the like sort of like brouhaha of the press junkets and the this and the you know star people who are there to get stars auto autographs and things like that. And it just becomes about the audience in the movie and the audience wanting to be there for the movie. It's kind of there's like a, something really special about that. Yeah, absolutely. There was a really interesting dynamic in general this year. There. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned your first movie, Novitiate, which I, I loved. Uh, and I'd known about The Burial for a while. And I was interested in it because it just did not seem like yeah. <laughs> what the, the filmmaker of Novitiate would do next. Um, I know you wrote Novitiate, you co-wrote this film, but I, I don't believe that the project originated with you. So how did you no, come to it? No, not at all. Yeah. So how did you come to it? <laughs> the project was around, has been around for like 20 years. And actually the, the movie takes place in 1995, like 1994 to 1996 ish. And Around that time, like very shortly thereafter is when the first draft of the script was written, adapted from the New Yorker article. So it's been around forever. And I think Alexander Payne was attached for a while and yeah. Ron Howard, like various directors. And for me, like after Novitiate, my, I was very like kind of like squared in the idea of doing female driven stories and mm -hmm. very like filmmakerish, you know, very like sort of like craft driven pieces that I could put a lot of like you know, like a, 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 very, a very sort of like rigorous craft into. Yeah, more art housey maybe. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it, this was not what I had in mind. There was a Shirley Chisholm project that I had been on that never got made, but I had been on with Amazon for about four or five months. And it was like very kind of fun and freewheeling. It wasn't, it was like, mm. a, it was a very like, the script was by this guy, Adam County, who's a friend and amazing writer. And it had like almost like an American hustle vibe. It was kind of mm -hmm. so. And then I punched, I did a draft of the script and was so they were like, oh, you, you, we think, we think you'd be a good fit for this. And I was like, oh, okay. And I remember passing on it a couple of times, not because I didn't like the script, but just because I was like, it's so random. It's, you know what I mean? It's like, <laughs> I was just like, it's yeah. like these two men and a trial. Um, like, I have no relationship to this, but. Then COVID happened and other stuff that I was 
working on kind of like fell apart. And um, this one, like it seemed like it was getting made and they kept coming back. And then, you know, obviously Jamie Foxx had not been attached, but he was kind of like circling around it, waiting for a director to come on. And I was like, um, well, you have to take this seriously because it's like the best marriage of actor and character that I've ever seen almost, you know, mm. like, yep. so I thought that that was like really worth investing in it, even if not. And then I just kind of like got into like the nineties courtroom dramas and I was just like, you know, this is kind of fun. I could like, it's, I could make it kind of nostalgic and yes, it's very different, but it, I'm not as like serious and grave as Novitiate is. <laughs> right, right. You know what I mean? So if you knew me as a person, you wouldn't think it was odd. Right. I, I can already tell. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the mood of Novitiate is not the mood of Maggie Beth. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Run for Revoke is where you'll meet all the most exciting people in fashion and culture. I am Fran Libowicz. Um, we should be the mayor of New York. We all support yeah, that. We support that. Very <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nikki. Yes. It's been really great she being in this beautiful pink room. All right, Asher, can you hear us? I can hear you. All right. Can you hear me? We can. We can. All right, here we are. <laughs> On the podcast, you'll learn how Vogue really works. Sometimes we'll come in for a second or even third run through until we are... AWOK. Can you tell us what AWOK means? It means um, A-W-O-K, and a winter OK. I'm Cho Minardi. And I'm Chloe Mal. And we're the hosts of The Run-Through with Vogue, where fashion and culture collide. Join us. It's AWOK. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Wondry's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when their adoring fans learned about the infamous lip-syncing, their downfall was swift and brutal. With exclusive interviews from frontman Fab Morvan and his producers Frank Farian and Ingrid Segeith, this podcast takes a fresh look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So you, um, the, the courtroom drama... The way that this movie plays with that genre, that, you know, history in, in yeah. cinema is really interesting. So how did you get into it? What's What was your relationship to it, I suppose, before this project even came your way? And what did your process of really getting into it? The courtroom drama? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was like when I was a kid, we had HBO and Showtime and stuff, but they didn't like they didn't have like that. You know, it was like they had the sort of like not the sort of plethora of options. Yeah. And it used to be on like. USA up all night and stuff. You know, it was just like, sure. it was all these like, it was like all these courtroom dramas that I watched again and again and again as a kid. Not because I like loved them, just because they were like on all the time. And they always had like, they always had like Raul Julia or someone as like the, <laughs> you know, defense attorney. Or totally. they had like, it's always like Jack Warner was like the kind of bristling PI that was like eating a roast beef sandwich in the back of a, you know, like bar and had the file here and, and they all had the exact same formula. And there, there was something like very comforting about them. So when I first encountered the material, I was like, well, I don't know what to do because the whole courtroom thing feels really dated to me mm -hmm. and it's not a kind of contemporary genre. And I think people are, you know, you just don't see them that much anymore. And like law and order is not interesting to people anymore. 
so I was like, oh, that's a problem. But then I was like, actually, maybe that's maybe that's an advantage because maybe the idea of like kind of like like really going back to that kind of like 90s, like B-ish courtroom drama would be very like nostalgic. And, you know, if you like lean into it as opposed to kind of like try and innovate it or try and come up with some way to make it feel contemporary would was not the right approach. And so, and then I just, it was very touching to kind of go back and watch. I mean, they're also yeah. like, you know, it's like Jagged Edge and like, you know, mm-hmm. like all, the names are so funny. And I always, my sister and I always thought it was so funny that like, cause I used to watch them all the time with my sister that like, whenever there was like a love thing between the two lawyers, like the defense, they would always like call each other counselor in the sex seat. You know what I mean? You'd always be yeah. like, Ooh, counselor. You know, and so we just thought it was so funny. Like no lawyers ever call another lawyer like count like watch yourself, counselor, whatever. But so that that type of thing was really funny to me. Like just those movies. Hearing you say that makes me think of Journey Smollett yeah, <laughs> and her, exactly. her her character, which I believe was your creation, right? The film yeah, is loosely yeah, yeah. based on true events. So so there you go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you brought her right in, uh, I assume, with that uh with that dynamic in mind. Yeah, no, it, it definitely like the kind of like the Laura Linney one and um which is a good movie, the one with Edward Norton when he when he um Oh yeah Primal um, Fear. Primal Fear, yeah. But it's always like they used to have an affair, you know, the, you know what I mean? They But yeah, but then, you know, it was also kind of like Amazon gave me the opportunity because I, one of my sort of like contingencies was one that I got to rewrite the script, obviously, and then the other was that I could change one of even though it was a true story, change one of the existing male characters to a female mm-hmm. character because I just want to have a strong woman in it. So th- it was really fun because you had a lot more freedom to kind of like completely make somebody up. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, she was kind of based on a lot of those, like we use a lot of Marsha Clark and you know what I mean? Just yes. kind of like, um, and Journey was really, really into it. And she was into like slight camp of it as well as like the kind of like, what is, what is a female lawyer in this situation really like? Um, but the character was really fun. And it was just meant to be like the perfect adversary to Willie Gary, you know, who kind of like thinks he's a buffoon, like thinks he's a joke. You know what I mean? Which he yeah. is. And you know what I mean? So it's kind of meant to be. And it was meant to be like she's a little bit superior to him, even though he's the hero. Like we can see that, like, she's a much more impressive person than him right. on every <laughs> level. You yeah. know what I mean? Yes. It's made quite clear. <laughs> <laughs> well, the one thing for me that links... Uh, one big thing that links this film with Novitiate is the really barn-burning, unreal performances that you get uh, at the center of them. And I, I love you as a director of actors because you really let them go big. Melissa Leo yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, in Novitiate and, and Jamie Foxx especially, but quite a few great actors in this film. Um, so I'm curious, I have a few questions about that, but one, coming off of Novitiate, like, what did you learn about yourself as a director of actors, particularly, you know, actors who you know, are stars, have won Oscars in both of these uh, yeah. people's cases and um, are bringing something kind of different and kind of in the, the realm of what we love about them to these roles? Yeah, I mean, I kind of like my idea is to write it and discuss it with as much kind of like accuracy as I can give and then give it to them. I usually don't say anything for like four or five takes and I just kind of let them figure it out. And then like after the fourth or fifth take, I'll start to suggest little things here and there, but usually very minor. Like people are like, oh, you're such a great director of actors, but I don't really do much. You know what I mean? Like that's really the truth. I mean, I think I'm really good at casting. So I know that mm-hmm. I know that 
I'm hiring somebody who's really going to be excited about the role and who's going to really like dive into it. But I mean, take something like Bill Camp or Julianne Nicholson. Like, I don't know if I ever said a word to them. You know what I mean? It just like had yeah. lunch or something, but they're so good. And they, they so intuitively are going to know exactly what to do. But yeah, with Jamie and Melissa, I worked a little more. And I think like, you know, I grew up like loving Paul Thomas Anderson movies and stuff like that. So I like a little camp. Like I like it. Yes. Like when you talk about bigness, I, I like it just like, just just on the verge of camp, but still in the world of reality, but a little B-ish too, which I, which I sort of feel like is my favorite thing about Paul Thomas Anderson. So I kind of encourage that, which I think they like because it's kind of like, I think their instinct is like to go for realism or naturalism or this or that. And I kind of am, depending on the story, of course, like not, that's not, and you know, in like Novitiate, you had the character like Margaret Qualley, who's like very real and very straight, you know what I mean? And then, or in this movie, like Tommy Lee Jones is very, is meant to be very kind of like more naturalistic and sort of like human and not in a hyper reality per se. But so, yeah, so I kind of like, I think the thing I do best is like, let them do their thing. And Jamie, you couldn't possibly direct anyway, because he's like, he's such a, he's such an insanely talented person, almost like frighteningly talented. And he's so, um, he's a comedian at heart and he's an improv guy by heart. So you can't, like, he's literally just going to do like what he feels in the moment. He doesn't like to rehearse. He doesn't really like to, you know what I mean? He just likes to like, kind of like, and every take is different. And, you know, he'll ask sometimes for little things, but he's basically like, he's basically just like sort of like launched and flying from the minute you call action and very funny, like really funny. I thought of his stand-up comedy at times watching mm-hmm. this. I mean, it's just, it's that much of a sort of owning a space. Yeah. I, I have no idea, you know, it's like the the dialogue is great. The writing is great, but I have no idea where he's going off the cover or not because it's just all feels so him. Well, I mean, I think it's really important to like also cast actors around him that can go with him. Like I was, mm-hmm. sh- I mean, I knew Alan Rock came off of Succession, which is obviously everybody knows is like very, very improv based. Yes. But like those two, like Alan Rock is like on fire when you go full improv, like he can just go, you know what I mean? Like, full, yeah. so, um, Bill Camp also. So you're, so you have a <laughs> Tommy Lee, not so much. <laughs> I, was about, I was about to say, <laughs> yeah, he likes to like keep it by the book. But, um, when you when you fill the room with like actors who like really love improv and are very naturally funny, like Alan Ruck is very funny, like amazing things happen. But particularly with Jamie and Alan Ruck, like their takes were nuts. Like they would, you know what I mean? They would just be like off the wall saying the craziest I could, stuff. I, I could tell. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, the, I mean, we should definitely talk about Tommy Lee Jones, uh, yeah. who's also wonderful in this movie. But I, I am curious about him in relation to Jamie. Like, did you know how Jamie would, I suppose show up on the set, how he would deal with uh, takes and things like that. And then from there, what was your awareness of how he was, how Tommy would play off of that? Because it obviously works great in the movie, but I imagine in <laughs> different styles. <laughs> uh, they were hilarious. I mean, I, yeah, I had a sense of what Jamie was like before, because I spoke to other directors and I spoke to his agent a lot and stuff. And I, I knew that he was like, he doesn't like to rehearse. He doesn't like, he likes to just come in And he likes, he needs the spontaneity and he needs the, I think he needs kind of like the pressure of, you know what I mean? To Mm -hmm. kind of like, and Tommy Lee Jones was the opposite. Like Tommy Lee Jones, I spent like 16, 18 hours meeting with on Zoom beforehand. He wanted to discuss like 
every word of it. You know what I mean? He's like, Mm -hmm. so the word the here, like, what did you mean by that? You know, and so he's incredibly meticulous, incredibly like, and it's very scary too, because he's kind of like a old professor or something like that. Like, Mm -hmm. you just keep like, what you know, wondering he's going to question you on everything. But, um, but they were, they, they did kind of like a have, have a like, a little bit of an affinity or cordiality towards each other. I, I mean, I think that their different styles didn't impact in the least, you know, like how they came into a scene or how a st- scene went. But they definitely are not. I mean, I don't think they're going on Cabo to vacation together next hmm. week. You know what I mean? Like they're like they're fr- right. you know, they're they're different gentlemen, but they yes. really liked each other. No, and good colleagues, and obviously made yeah. for for. I remember Jamie kept saying he because Tommy Lee Jones is like a ranch in Texas that he, was, he always talks about, and Jamie was like saying like oh, he's, he's messing with him. He's like, I really like to go to that ranch sometime. He's like, oh, I love an invitation to the ranch, and Tommy's just like kind of like you know what I mean, <laughs> <laughs> looking around the room. <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of what I want from this movie. Like that's yeah. that's the behind the scenes story that I I would hope for <laughs> yeah. from the burial. Yeah. If you go on my Instagram, there's a video that's great that I put up when we were going to Toronto. And not like promoting my Instagram. Right. Sorry. Like, <laughs> Please there's, do. There's a video there <laughs> that shows everybody dancing between, because Jamie always brings like a boom box and like all this music. It's like a nightclub vibe, you know? And it's kind of like it pans around to like everybody in the courtroom set, just like, you know, Bill Camp, everybody. And then it hits Tommy and he's just kind of like sitting there like, <laughs> like old curmudgeon who's like, when is this tomfoolery going to wrap itself up? Right. But right. yeah, it's really funny. Amazing. Um, you know, as you mentioned, I think when you first encounter this story, you see what it's about. It could seem a little random. And yes. I, 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 but I did love the way the movie really subtly and almost like imperceptibly starts to show its depth a little bit. And I'm just curious how you, I don't want to spoil anything, but you know, how you thought about the tone of this movie and the fact that it really does have something to say, um, just with a very light touch. I mean, the thing that I thought about more was how to bring back the comedy, you know what I mean? Or how to, (laughs) like, because the thing that I always, the thing that I always like, didn't like, and I I imagine probably the same is like, you'd watch these really, really funny movies and then they would drift into like a kind of like serious yep. part. And then you'd be really bummed that it never got to be funny again. So I was kind of like, how do you bring in, like you said, this depth and like much more sort of like substantial, like bottom heavy topics, but still get back to the the thing that was the most winning about the movie. But I felt like it was, I tried to make it gradual because I feel like once you enter the courtroom section of the movie, which is about the midpoint, it starts to become a little bit more serious and a little bit more serious and a little bit more serious. And it just kind of like gradually gets you there. Hopefully if it works for whoever the given audience member is. But um, I didn't think a lot about it as like a complicated tonal shift. It made sense to me because you've seen it in a lot of movies. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's just about the, there's a gradualness of it that it doesn't like kind of turn on. Like it's weird when movies like suddenly turn on a dime on you and become something, a totally different tone. So yeah, it was, it didn't feel that difficult. Yeah. It's, it's interesting because in a lot of those nineties courtroom dramas, it, it does have exactly that, the sort of abrupt, like 
oh, we are in a drama. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There is a grave issue at hand, and we will we will unpack it with due respect. Yeah, um, but and yeah, all the kind of like lighthearted banter and back and forth is like suddenly replaced, and and it's annoying. Like you, I feel like as you're always kind of like you miss the beginning. Or you'll take a comedy that you really like or dramedy and only watch the first 40 minutes again and again and again or half hour and then mm-hmm. you stop. You don't watch anymore because it's like, oh, this is when it's going to get boring again. Yeah. To the point of boring, which this movie is anything but, you know, Novitiate particularly is a really visually dynamic movie. Yeah. And I, I found that this movie really used its space in an interesting way, and it kept it feeling really dynamic. Um, and in a lot of those courtroom dramas, that is not always the case. So yeah. I'm curious how you confronted that challenge. I mean, I you know, the one thing that I was kind of like disheartened by about the subject matter was that it didn't really, it wasn't really appropriate to be too art house. Stylish, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 stylish about it. Um, so I did like hold back, like rein in a lot of instincts with this movie, Mm-hmm. But I think the thing that like got me immediately was we wanted to make like Willie Gary and his like legal team as like posse like we were basing them myself and the costume designer the production production designer like almost like um out of like a nineties like P Diddy video you know it was like bling and like you know in the clothes mm-hmm. hip hop videos from the nineties and the kind of like the colors and this and that were kind of like very much the idea and will the will, Willie Gary's idea was a big part of how we went about thinking about it visually and then it was like a lot of steady cam with him like it, you know with, with with Tommy Lee it was it was much more kind of like contained and but with him it was like a lot of like movement and stuff and he's like this whirling dervish of a guy and it was just kind of like to have a camera movement or sort of camera protocols that like worked for him and then the courtroom was like I mean, our production designer, whose name is Kay Lee, built this amazing courtroom Mm -hmm. that allowed us to like lay tracks in a lot of different places and do kind of more interesting things. And I had watched, I wouldn't call it an influence, but I had watched The People versus O.J. Simpson. Is that what the, there were? Yes. 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 Speaking of Marsha Clark. (laughs) Yeah. Ryan Murphy one. Is it, was it Ryan? Yeah. The Ryan Murphy FX series. Yeah. And I was like very impressed by how visually interesting they were able to make that the courtroom in that movie. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, a series, cause it's like the OJ trial, which you've seen a million times, it's going on and on and on, but they had like, it wasn't overdone, but they had a lot of different angles. So I looked at that a lot and I was like, Oh, and then, you know, what was kind of like creative was Philadelphia too. Like Jonathan mm. likes those like almost uh, eye contact type direct mm-hmm. eye contact shots. And he's like, which you first see in silence of the lambs, but it's kind of like more, it's done in a bigger way in Philadelphia. And then I really like the distance of the verdict. Like the verdict would have these super wide, like the big cross-examination scene with Paul Newman and like whoever the doctor guy is or whatever. It's like, it's all like this super wide from like the ceiling or something. And it's mm-hmm. like the figures are so small. You could look through various courtroom dramas and pick out different things that you were like, oh, that's a really interesting shot. Oh, that's a really interesting shot. And then figure out like how to replicate them and put together your own collection and try and create some kind of like aesthetic for it. Yeah. You do all that and then you put those Jamie Foxx suits in there and it's, yeah, it's, yeah, your, exactly. it's your own thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, it's interesting because you, you really are able to draw on so much history just in the medium and, and what so many great filmmakers have done and, and then make it your own. I mean, that's, that's the beauty of genre. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I came in like sort of mocking the like nineties 
courtroom drama genre and came into this interview, but like presumed innocent or the verdict or the, you know, they're like quite amazing. They're also like incredible. Yes. You know what I mean? Yeah. So. You're, you're, you're not talking about slouches here. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not well, talking about like extreme justice. You know right. what I mean? like, Lifetime. Yeah. TV yeah exactly. movie. No, definitely not. <laughs> so you come into this, well, I, I suppose you come out of novitiate feeling of like your specific kind of filmmaker. Maybe you make this movie, which I would imagine has to broaden the way you see yourself as a director somewhat. So how, how did, how did that work? How do you, see what you want to do going forward coming off of a movie that is so different uh, from what you did with your first film. I mean, I think I like you learn so much about yourself because you're kind of like, okay, I'm making this movie. So I have to make it my own in the sense that like, I have to make it like interesting to me. Like, you know what I mean? Have to make it mm -hmm. like challenging to me and interesting to me and make it like something that I want to do. I can't like, it can't be a job. I have to be really passionate about it. And so I mean, this was a script and a story that did not feel like me in any way, shape or form, like as a creative, like, you know, there's lots of things that I liked about it just as a person. But I think what I learned is not to be closed minded about any script that kind of like comes, you know, there's a lot of scripts that come through and you're like, oh, that's not for me. That's not, or you just get the synopsis and you're like, no, I'm not interested in that. And I think this is a situation where I was forced to like decide if I was or was not interested in it. If I, you know, what I mean? if I couldn't make myself interested in it. And you surprise yourself, I think. I'm Bobby Finger. And I'm Lindsay Weber. Do you ever see a new face or name on your news feeds and say, who the heck is that? Our podcast, Who Weekly, is everything you need to know about the celebrities you don't. Think of us as your cheat code to People Magazine, your glossary for Hollywood, a shortcut to understanding pop culture at large. For the past eight years, Who Weekly has been telling listeners everything they need to know about the celebrities they don't. The New Yorker says we spelunk deep into the demimonde with convivial delight. That's a direct quote. Mostly, we're going to explain to you Irish star Barry Keoghan's sudden rise to fame and relationship with a not-so-under-the-radar pop princess named Sabrina. The fake wedding Real Housewives star Cynthia Bailey had to promote a limo rental company. And why all the Gen Zers you know are talking about a guy named Benson Boone. Each episode goes deep into the biggest celebrity stories of the moment. And if you're still confused, we even have a weekly call-in episode where we answer the most burning celebrity queries. Who Weekly airs twice weekly with brand new episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays. Listen and follow Who Weekly, an Odyssey podcast, available now for free on the Odyssey app and wherever you get your podcasts. So, Hillary, you had a conversation with the star of a movie that, as far as I can tell, is the diametric opposite of the burial in every possible way, which I think makes for a very fun combination. <laughs> well, um, I will tell you, it's the kind of movie they don't make anymore <laughs> <laughs> or have ever made before in human history. <laughs> uh, you talked to Nathan Lane, who is uh, one of many chaotic, wonderful elements of Dick's the Musical. That, yes. Uh, Dick's the Musical is easily described but tough to really get, I think, unless you're actually watching it. Um, it is a riff on the parent trap um, in which the two comedians who wrote the movie, they adapted it from their uh, old comedy show that used to play at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater in New York City. Um, but they play two twins separated at birth who decide to reunite their parents, played by Nathan Lane and Megan Mullally. Um, the plot is really not the point at all. The point is just a lot of very raunchy humor, um, very silly and absurd. And uh, Nathan Lane and Megan Mullally are both so, so funny in this movie. Um, they're pros. They sing. They dance. Uh and it was really fun to talk to uh, Nathan about playing the father 
uh, the the Dennis Quaid of the movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's on such a good run right now. He won an Emmy for Only Murders in the Building. Like, he is the kind of guy who pops up all over the place. But this... He's become movie- kind of a, a poster boy for A24 because he was just in Bo was Afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. Yes, Dix is um, an A24 movie. It's their first musical as they're advertising it. Um, and yeah, and he's he's having a good time in it. Although, uh, as you'll hear in the interview, sometimes uh, he was not quite sure that what they were doing was going to uh, was going to work. But I think it did. <laughs> I feel like if you uh, are in a movie called Dix the Musical, you have to have those moments from time to time. Otherwise, you're just not not following along. Uh, Dixon Musical is open in limited release now. It'll be expanding over the next couple of weeks. I haven't gotten to see it yet. So for now, I will just have to experience through your interview. Um, let's hear your conversation with Nathan Lane. Hello, Nathan Lane. So happy to have you here, um, star of stage and screen and of Dix the Musical. Thank you very much. <laughs> nice to be here. Um, uh, how had you uh, been spending your uh, long strike summer? Well, um, I was supposed to be writing a memoir, and that that's not been going well. But um, yeah, nah, just being with my husband and my dogs, and we're out in East Hampton, and uh, yeah, it's just hoping. Yeah, I'm very happy that the writers uh, finally settled and got what what they we're hoping for mm-hmm. but it is nice to be able to talk to you about this movie um despite the strike uh because it's just such a i don't know a unique i guess is a it's a good word to describe um the musical um and I've heard just, that word used yes unique. <laughs> once or twice um I'm, I'm just so curious what your uh first encounter with i guess at that point it was called uh fucking identical twins um with this project was and how how you came on board. Yes. I'm nostalgic for that title. (laughs) I was sent the script and also a video of the original two man show that they did at upright citizens brigade, Josh Sharp and Aaron Jackson. And, um, the script I thought was uh, very funny, you know, totally outrageous. And, and the video sort of helped put it all into context and (laughs) the kind of tone they were after and um, the satirical absurdist tone of it all. So I I just, I wasn't sure whether I wanted to be the guy who, who had to feed the sewer boys. (laughs) In the two man show is your character played by one of uh, the two of them. Yes. Josh Josh played the father and, and Aaron played Evelyn in a wheelchair with a wig. (laughs) reminiscent of psycho yes uh yes it was very funny because they had to keep changing clothes and yeah so uh, I, but a big part of the equation was um larry charles who i have a lot of respect for and have admired and in, in the past and and uh so he and i zoomed and hit it off and i just loved him and then uh even my representatives were a little uh trepidatious about this film and then i said look i need to meet the these two guys if i'm going to do this and then so we had a dinner in new york and uh uh you know they're they're just they're so smart and so funny and adorable and i you know they're the gay sons i never had (laughs) so uh you know so that was it 
that sort of clinched it. And um, then we were off and running. Was there any one thing that they said that kind of convinced you if you had like one last lingering doubt before signing on? It was just, um, I, you know, it was like a date. I just loved <laughs> them. I thought they were just hilarious and very smart. And ultimately, aside from liking them personally, I just admired their chutzpah, their sort of devil-may-care attitude. <laughs> they don't seem to care whether you like this <laughs> or not. And I thought, well, I, that, it's and it's a part of, um, they're a part of this sort of, young queer comedy community like like Bowen and and uh, Julio Torres and Billy Eichner and and um, you know it's it's uh, <laughs> they don't know from shame they're just <laughs> they're just out there and happy and living their lives and um, you know I, I uh, so that that part of it I loved yeah it's just so so confident, so, yeah, unapologetic, so just, like, right. very strongly what it is. You know, you, you know, you twenty. we made this in 20 days <laughs> for very little money. And in somewhere in Burbank, they sort of looked like sound stages, but maybe <laughs> they just were warehouses. <laughs> <laughs> but when you sit in the, th when I sat in the theater in L.A. in particular, when I saw it, it was the second time I had seen it, there's there's just like a it's like a free for all. I don't know people. It, I, I think the, it, there's something very freeing about the movie not caring and being so outrageous. I think because of the world we're in now, which is a very extremely politically correct. Don't say this. Don't do that. Don't say gay um, mm -hmm. moment that uh, this is sort of like saying, yeah, go say gay, say gay say fuck, say whatever you want. It's a free mm -hmm. country. So, yeah, that's been interesting to see the reaction. I mean, now, of course, this is a very, uh, these uh, premieres have had, there's been a lot of uh, gay people watching. So that, that certainly helps. I mean, that's who it's targeted for. But, and it'll be interesting to see what happens when it wanders out into the real world. <laughs> uh, but uh, um, it certainly is a crowd pleaser. I, I, you know, I haven't heard that kind of laughter since uh, the Birdcage. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I saw it uh, at the TIFF premiere, um, and it was a, a packed house. And yeah, it feels. Yes. I mean, it does feel like a movie that benefits from an audience, a, a rowdy audience. Well, that's a great thing. Is that yeah? You this is not something you want to sit at home alone by yourself watching then it might be very disturbing. <laughs> but it is a, it's a communal experience. It's the old-fashioned movie experience of sitting with a large group of people watching a comedy. It reminds me of when I, when I was a kid going to see with friends a Young Frankenstein and people just roaring with laughter. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's so much fun. And, and that's what seems to be happening with this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I, I think that another thing that I appreciated as a, about it um, as just a musical theater fan is that the music is really good. Like, I, I feel right. like it's, yeah, it's so easy for a musical comedy to have a bunch of kind of like lame meta humor that's like about the concept of being a musical. And this movie, and I guess the show too, like, they don't do that. Like, it's a funny 
musical instead of a parody of musicals, which I yeah. found really refreshing. Yeah. Um, you know, that's Carl St. Lucie, who's a very talented young composer who started with the guys in the basement of Christides with this sketch. <laughs> and uh, he wrote a really tuneful, really fun score with them. And then this genius, Marius de Vries, came in, who um, was in charge of sort of the music supervisor. And he also contributed some music, I think, on the with the... Uh, contributed to the um, Megan the Stallion number, but also just underscoring and just, he's brilliant and what he what he's done. And the score, I thought, sounded fantastic. I was so pleased by that. Yeah, it's very, it's, a, it's got a lot of uh, toe tappers, a lot of songs that stuck in your head. Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, so tell me, tell me about uh, the process of actually making the movie. I mean, you mentioned it happened in 20 days. Um, had you worked with Megan Mullally before? Oh, yes. We were old friends. <laughs> and that was a uh, uh, also a crucial part of it, who was going to play Evelyn. Mm-hmm. And once they said they were thinking about Megan, I was like, that's it. She's fearless. She, she won't bat an eye at this material. And mm-hmm. yeah, you know, she, uh, she's obviously uh, a brilliant comedian and also fantastic singer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love, I love your duet, uh, the lonely song. You have some really beautiful harmonies, which I wasn't really expecting to see in a movie like this necessarily. Yeah. Well, it's sort of a little poignant moment of, mm-hmm. you know, it is about, you know, uh, people searching for a family mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and, and, and they are all lonely. So yeah, that's a. I love that song, and and uh, but I knew Ma- Megan would sing the hell out of it, which she does, and um, yeah. So that was that was a huge uh, help <laughs> to to be with someone who you have a history with and a relationship with, and and we love working together, and we just laughed ourselves silly. We mm-hmm. we all did every day, all twenty days. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, the the scene where you are uh, giving him to the sewer boys, it does seem even in it's in the blooper reel, but also in the take that's in the movie itself, you do look like you're on the verge of breaking. So many and- people have said that I, I'm I'm not really. The only thing he did do was he put in Josh and Aaron. I think at some point just were let broke up and laughing, mm-hmm. and he he put that in. Um, because I was thinking, did he use takes where we were, uh, you know, that's like one of the biggest laughs in the movie is feeding the sewer boys with deli meat. I think that was the, yeah, that was the moment that convinced me that this movie hey, you, was. won you over? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. Sewer, how can you say no to the sewer boys? You know, I said to the guys, I said, uh, you know, you were, uh, you were prophetic when you wrote, uh, me saying, Oh, they're gay culture. Because it seems like they're slowly but surely becoming a part of gay culture <laughs> because of the film. Uh, that's what a lot of people want to discuss is the sewer boys. How do you feel about discussing the sewer boys? I'm happy to talk about them. What was your response to seeing those puppets for the first time? Well, I, it, well, at first I thought they had stolen a, a, a Walmart Halloween display. <laughs> And, um, you know, originally in the sketch, they were just referred to. You didn't actually mm-hmm. see them. And 
And it was intimated that he might be having sexual relations with these creatures. And, uh, and I believe that's where um, A24 and Peter Chernin Entertainment drew the line. Harris, <laughs> so there was a line. Harris, there, that's where the line was drawn. Harris could not be having sex with these creatures. <laughs> so, and so because there was some discussion of whether it would be played by uh, actors, you know, two Cirque du Soleil gymnasts or something. And then uh, it, it was, no, it was definitely had to be puppets. And the, the less realistic, the better. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, it's, you know, part of its charm. <laughs> the, the fact that they just sort of stand there and, and shake. They don't really do a lot. Apparently, one of them can move animatronically, move his mouth. I don't know whether they got a close-up of, of him chewing. <laughs> but, um, yes, the, the whole uh, feeding them. Which like a mother bird, and I had said to Larry, "Don't you do you want me to like get over them and really do it like a mother bird?" <laughs> and the, he said, "No, I just want you to open the cage and spit in their faces, spit as as best you can right into their little mouths." And uh, and really, that 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 could have gone on for another ten minutes, just me spitting. Yeah. How how long were you filming that moment? Well, we had done it when uh, when we were doing filming the number, or we had done it, and then when we we did the scene, and then we were filming the number, and then it was a very it was, that blooper you see is very late at night. It's after midnight, and Larry had said, um, "If you don't mind, I, I'd love to get another angle of you feeding the sewer boys." And I was like, "Now you want to do that now?" And he said, "Yeah, it would really help me." And I said, "Okay." And uh, so then that's. You see the, the what happened afterwards, which was they brought in a, as they said, a fresh bag of ham, for me to chew on and spit. So that was my my. We had our little joking moment. Oh yeah, well you you do joke that that's uh, the title of your other autobiography. Um, yeah. What is fresh bag of ham? Does, does, do you have a what's the first uh, alternate title of your memoir? Well. One title I've been thinking about, which is it's based on a story, uh, 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 an interview with Marty Short, a friend of mine who was asked by a journalist about, you know, after he had done damages and he was nominated for an Emmy and he was saying, would you like to do uh, more serious work or what about doing serious work? And he said, no, no, I'm very happy doing what I do. And he said, look, when you go to the zoo and you enter the monkey house, you want to see the monkeys act like monkeys. You don't want to see them be introspective, <laughs> which uh, made me laugh. And then I thought uh, to myself, I, I think I might be one of the introspective monkeys. So that's a potential title, an introspective monkey. Were you uh were you following uh the the uproar online after uh that article about Martin Short from a couple of weeks ago? Oh, of course. Well, we you know we laughed, and he was he said the funniest thing was people's people reaching out with like condolences. <laughs> Don't worry, you're hysterical. You know, love Jay Leno. So yeah, I mean, look, 
you know, as I said to him, what, what the, the guy called him uh, desperate, sweaty, and unfunny. I said, I, I said, I can't tell you how many reviews I've gotten that have said the same thing. So, uh, yeah, no, he did not. You know, I think Marty is a strong enough person. And, he, you know, as far as I'm concerned, a bona fide genius. So I, I, I don't think he was troubled by it. Well, that's that's and, good and to hear. Certainly, too. yes, people were incensed by someone going after him. This one of the most beloved gentlemen in the business. Yeah, it did seem a little miscalculated for sure. Yeah, yeah, like what you have, you really have too much time on your hands. You, <laughs> is this is the decision you've come to? But that that does sort of also connect back to Dix, though, which is that I feel like something like this could everything could have back to Dix. <laughs> that is the pull quote. Many of life's lessons can be learned from Dix. <laughs> um, but yeah, like uh, I think that it's also just so refreshing that it's not a desperate movie. That, like you were saying before, like it's putting it it's putting itself out there, and if you don't like it, you can really kind of just go to hell. Um, which, uh, yeah, I mean that that energy must be kind of yeah. nice to. I, I, you know, look, if you, uh, you, uh, one hopes somebody would look at a trailer and that tells you a great deal about it. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've said the line where the names of the sewer boys are backpack and whisper. And if that makes you, you laugh, see, you just laugh. So yeah. if you find that amusing <laughs> and you kind of get that, then this is, this is the movie for you. And if you're like staring blankly, like what what the hell does that mean then then you just should stay home and watch blue bloods <laughs> as well speaking as an emissary from the straight community i can confirm that some of us will like it sure yes <laughs> or you know bring a gay person with you and they'll explain it to you yes <laughs> Um, I, I'm curious also about, uh, the recording of that final song, um, the all love is love song, kind of what the, what the mood was like when you were kind of putting together this grand finale. That sort of was like maybe the first thing we shot. Oh, really? As a group. And, uh, yes, Bo and Yang tells the story that on a break, Megan Mullally <laughs> said to the guys, uh, you know, you're going to get death threats. And then, and then she thought about it for a second and said, we're all going to get death threats. Um, so I hope it doesn't come to that, but, um, yeah, I mean, look, it's in, in terms of the, this particular film, it, I, it makes sense. And the whole thing about, you know, God is, uh, Bowen, who plays God, says, mm-hmm. you know, he's all things. He's, you know, he's gay, and we know, which is what the guys pick up on and then sing that lyric that God is a faggot mm-hmm. and all love is love. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, yeah, people could be troubled by that. You know, it I, would be, I don't know. I would be surprised, honestly, because it just is so, yeah, it's so over the top. Yes, you would have to be an idiot to take any of this seriously. But, mm-hmm. you know, there are a lot of idiots in this country. <laughs> and they're, they're all just sitting home waiting to be offended. <laughs> so, and, get, you know, and they're all looking for an uprising. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that word, you know, is so 
you know, I have trouble with that word. And yet this is a younger generation of, uh, of, of gay comics. And, and um, in many ways, it's, it's like the N word. They're sort of reclaiming it and using it. But uh, yeah, it's uh, that and the, <laughs> well, you know, it was Larry's notion that the guys have a sex scene. That, that, that. Oh, they that, hadn't originally written one into the script? No, no. He said, you should definitely have a big sex scene. And they were like, really? No. And then he made them do it. It's so hilarious when they have sex. Anyway, yeah. I mean, look, you know, the notion of, we're, yes, that we're promoting twincest. It's hilarious. First of all, they don't look anything alike. They <laughs> did. <laughs> oh man, I don't know. I don't know what'll happen. Uh, I yeah, it, it you know it's but the reception has been very warm and positive for the most part. Even even the less positive ones make you want to see it when you read what's going on. So for sure, yeah, and yeah, I I do think it seems like the kind of thing its audience will find. They'll sure. know where to look. Yeah, in in the sewer. Look in the sewer. that's where you'll find us is there anything uh you want people to take away from it besides just you know laughing no that's about it you know it's just meant to make people laugh i mean there's sure you can read you know look everything is political you know the the notion of two gay men you know portraying macho corporate businessmen <laughs> who talk a lot about their dicks and who aren't very nice people. I should note for listeners that there were a lot of finger quotes in uh, that oh, last sentence. Yeah. So, you know, that, that kind of whatever, you know, they're, them playing <laughs> um, uh, that kind of thing. And I don't know. It's, it's a, you know, it's as many people have said, it's this instant cult film. And uh, uh, so, I, you know, there will be many interpretations. I'm sure dissertations will be written in film schools someday about the <laughs> meaning of the sewer boys <laughs> and two twins getting married. But yes, ultimately, I think it's about making people laugh. Uh, you know, it's their crazy version of the parent trap. You know, that alone makes me laugh. You know, that's I think that's for others to decide what what deeper meanings there might be in this. Yeah, I do think it's nice also for something not to necessarily have a deeper meaning that you need to that you need to look for, that there are things that can just be enjoyed. Totally. It's I mean, there is it is about this. Yeah. A search for a family wanting to have a family and that connection and. But you yeah, know, a connection that even the most yeah even the most disgusting people deserve even the most yes weird and uh, totally and you know it's this character is you know he's created his own set of twins with the sewer boys so he, he raised one of them but you know he wound up having twins anyway and realizes that at the end of the film that maybe I should connect with my own family instead of dragging creatures out of the sewer. Um, Ultimately, we hope 
people laugh from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Would you uh, return for the Sewer Boys, the Sewer Boy only spinoff movie? Oh, D- Dicks 2, The Sewer Boys Revenge. <laughs> yes, of course. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> the Return of the Sewer Boys. Yes, of course. <laughs> oh, I, this is a franchise, baby. That does it for today's episode. We'll be back later this week. Find us in the meantime at VanityFair.com. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at VF Awards Insider. I am on Twitter at Katie Rich and David. David Canfield 97. And Hillary. Hillabuster. Our editor and producer, as always, is Brett Fuchs. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see whether I can read The Iliad again, whether I'm that literate. I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> 